Thousands of pedestrians are struck by cars in New York City every single year. If you have been to New York City, this statistic does not surprise you. Not only is New York much more of a walking city than almost any other city I've been to, except maybe London, it is also not what I would call a patient city. In other words, when the light says go for the crosswalk, people don't hesitate, they go. Immediately off the curbs and, and into the street. If you're around this type of, of walking for long enough, you begin to uh, adapt and take on a similar spirit. And so one day, after being in New York for quite some time, I was on a street corner reading a book, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw the crosswalk signal turn green, and my foot lifted to step off the curb into the road. That is when I felt a hand grab a hold of my arm and grab a hold of my elbow and tug at me just enough to stop my momentum from carrying me into the street. At that very moment, when I felt that tug and I kind of pulled back, a car sped right past me. The hand holding my arm released me, and the young lady dressed in uh, business attire that had grabbed me along with the rest of the people around me surged into the street. I quickly said, thank you. She smiled and without a word made her way through the crowd. I was a split second away, a split second away from being clipped or worse by a car trying to beat the light. If not for the stranger reaching out and grabbing hold of me and tugging me just enough to keep me from stepping in front of that car. I think most of us, if we were in a similar situation, would do the same thing as this lady did for me. We'd not only stop a stranger from stepping in front of a car, we'd probably even reach out, maybe even instinctually, to stop our worst enemy from stepping in front of a car. No one wants to see someone die. With that reality, why then are phrases like, it's none of my business, it is not my place to say anything, I don't want to upset them. Why are these phrases such regular parts of our modern and even our Christian vocabulary? I want to invite you to turn, if you have your Bibles with you, to the book of Daniel, chapter 4, as we ponder that question. Daniel, chapter 4. We're continuing our sermon series, Dare to Be a Daniel or His Friends, and we're looking at characteristics of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 4 is a story, another story of a dream. Daniel chapter 4 may be the only chapter written in the Bible of someone who was originally a pagan king. The first verses begin with the testimony from King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the, the king of Babylon, he writes to all the peoples, and verses 2 and 3 says, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. 
How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. What made Nebuchadnezzar feel this way? He is about to tell us in a story that goes against the grain of 21st century, the 21st century mindset. Uh, the mindset that, that believes that God never sends consequences, that there's never consequences for our actions. But chapter 4 of Daniel shows us that there are consequences to, to our characters, to the, to the decisions that we make, to the words that we speak. And in verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. Again, Nebuchadnezzar is writing this about himself. I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. This is a similar setup to the story in Daniel chapter 2. Only this time, Nebuchadnezzar is telling the story on himself. And just like in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar calls all of his wise men and all of his magicians. This time he tells them his dream. And he says, this is what I dreamed. Interpret it for me. But, but no one knows what it is about. But then Daniel arrives on the scene. And here is how Nebuchadnezzar describes that moment. At last, he says, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God. And Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel and us the dream. And here is what he says, beginning in verse 10 of Daniel chapter 4. Beginning in verse 10 of Daniel chapter 4. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to the heavens and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all the flesh was fed from it. I saw the vi in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and, 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 and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Then the watcher said, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. When Nebuchadnezzar finished relaying his dream to Daniel, the Bible tells us that Daniel was dismayed. Or in some versions, it says he was astonished. And thus he, he hesitated. But Daniel was not dismayed because he didn't understand what the dream meant. Daniel was not a, a, astonished because he didn't understand the dream. In the book Prophets and Kings by Ellen White, she wrote that the meaning of the dream was plain to Daniel. And in other words, it was clear 
to Daniel what this dream was about. He did not hesitate out of a lack of knowledge, but due to being startled by the significance of the dream. What Daniel saw was a car coming down the road towards the king, and the king was about to step off the curb in front of it. And after pausing, after hesitating, Daniel decides that he is going to tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is about. And in verse 20, Daniel says, The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to the heavens, it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. Verse 22, It is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Probably Nebuchadnezzar liked that, but he knew what was coming. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High. In other words, Daniel's saying, this is coming from God, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that the heaven rules. King, when you discover that the heavens rule, then, then you can be reestablished. That was the end of the interpretation. Daniel just told the king, Daniel just told at that point in time the most powerful man in the world that you are going to go mad. He's, he told him, you're going to lose your mind, king. God's going to humble you. You're going to be like an animal. But then Daniel adds a word, verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. And he says this, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel sees a car headed for Nebuchadnezzar and he reaches out his hand to grab the arm of Nebuchadnezzar to try to stop him and keep him from stepping in front of that car and potentially losing everything. For a while, it works. But about a year later, the king is walking around and he's talking to himself. He's looking around. He's admiring his kingdom. And he says this, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while those words were still on his lips, just like that, just like that, the king became a mindless beast he saw in his dream. 
the car which Daniel saw barreling towards the king was the king's own pride, his own vanity, his own narcissism, his belief that he was better than every other king that had come before him. The belief that, 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 that his kingdom was somehow superior to everybody else. The belief that, that his decisions and, and his power and his might were, were, were more abundant than anybody that had been before or anybody that would come after him. His belief even that he was bigger than God himself. And at the end of verse 32, God said to Nebuchadnezzar, because of your vanity, because of your arrogance, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Folks, we are called to oppose the proud, to oppose the leadership of the proud, but not only those who are in leadership that are proud, but to oppose our own pride. And for the next seven years, that is how Nebuchadnezzar was. He was a baffling beast before his people. One of the most interesting stories in all the Bible and one of the most unbelievable things that the most powerful individual in the world could lose their mind right in front of the people. But remember again, at the end of Daniel's interpretation of the dream, Daniel added this statement. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel told the king he was sinning. He grabbed his elbow to pull him back from being struck by the car of his own pride. And for a short while, the king listened to Daniel's warning. For a short while, the king heard Daniel's rebuke, but his heart wasn't truly turned, and so he had to deal with the consequences for a time. But then at the end of the seven years, he, he heeded Daniel's appeal. There was something in his mind that was still able to, to capture that appeal by Daniel, to repent. He did as the Lord said, and, and, and the Bible tells us he looked to the heavens and acknowledged God as truly the one that was King of kings and Lord of lords. And immediately, just as quickly as he had lost his mind, immediately his reason, his mind, his power, his kingdom were restored to him. But more importantly than that, I believe that in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar also received salvation. Ellen White wrote of Nebuchadnezzar, this. The once proud monarch had become a humble child of God. The tyrannical, overbearing ruler, a wise and compassionate king. He who had defied and blasphemed the God of heaven now acknowledged the power of the Most High and earnestly sought to promote the fear of Jehovah and the happiness of his subjects. Under the rebuke of him who is king of kings and lord of lords, Nebuchadnezzar had learned at last the lesson which all rulers need to learn. All rulers need to learn that true greatness consists in true goodness. And then Ellen White adds this statement. 
this public proclamation in which Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the mercy and the goodness and the authority of God was the last act of his life recorded in sacred history. I believe, honestly, we will get to see and meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. The last act that is recorded in sacred history is, is a profession of him acknowledging God as King of kings and Lord of lords. Him recognizing that, 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 that his greatness was not because of him, but was because of another. And I believe this is in part because Daniel dared to be a Daniel. How does that children's song go that we, that we sang so often when we were kids? Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, and dare to make it known. Dare to make it known. Daniel dared to make known to the king the direction he was headed, the trouble that he was in. Do we have Daniels in this world right now that are willing to, to let people know the direction that they are headed, to let people know that they are, are about to step in the road in front of a car and be struck? Most of us would grab someone if they were stepping off a curb into oncoming traffic, whether we knew that person or not. But are we willing to speak up to save lives? Are we willing to, to, to say to a, to a king, if you don't stop sinning, you're going to be lost? Many of us have friends, families, co family members, co-workers that are walking in and embracing a life of sin that goes expressly against the word of God. And yet we don't reach out our hands to clasp their arm. We don't reach out our, our hands to, to stop them from stepping in front of that, that car of destruction. It's not just these, those who are listening to these words right now. It's myself as well. I was convicted in this statement in, this, in the book Spiritual Gifts, Volume 2. It said this, Preachers should have no scruples to preach the truth as it is found in God's word. Let the truth cut. I have been shown that why ministers have not more success is they're afraid of hurting feelings, fearful of not being courteous, and they lower the standard of truth and conceal, if possible, the peculiarity of our faith. I saw that God could not make such successful. The truth must be pointed and the necessity of a decision urged. And as false shepherds are crying, peace, and are preaching smooth things, the servants of God must cry aloud and spare not and leave the results with God. I'm not calling us to be mean or to point out flaws just for the sake of pointing out flaws. I'm calling us to be Daniels and to care enough, to, to care enough to be willing to say, oh king, oh friend, oh brother, oh sister, oh, oh co-worker, Repent. I'm calling us to grab people by their elbows and save a life. Because the car of sin is just as deadly as a car trying to beat the light 
in New York City. In fact, it's more deadly. We're worried about what people will think of us, though, if we say that is sin. We're worried about what people will, will feel towards us if we say what you're doing is not okay. We're worried that it might make things uncomfortable in, in our relationship. But if we care about people, if we love people, we should be less worried about this and about these things and more worried about their eternal future. I have a friend who was talking to me about his sister and how frustrated he was with some of the decisions that, that she's been making, some of the choices that she's been making in her life. And, and, he, and he was talking about how his parents, they just won't say anything. They're, it's almost like they're encouraging her, even though they don't agree with the decisions that she is making. The decisions she's making break their hearts, but, but they don't want to say anything. And he says, and even worse, he told me it's like everything she posts on Facebook, they like, not because they really like it, but because they don't want her to feel bad. They don't want her to feel unsupported. They don't want her to feel unvalued. Y'all, if, if supporting people meant not saying that is wrong, then Jesus is very unsupporting. If loving people meant never calling someone out for their sin, then Peter and Paul and John and yes, Jesus, we're the most unloving persons ever. We should love people enough to say, hey, stop. This is not okay. Don't die in your sins. Francis Chan wrote, true compassion takes into account far more than what a person feels today. It takes into account what he or she may feel on judgment day. Y'all, Jesus died to get rid of sin, not for us to avoid confronting it. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. What does that mean? It means I believe Jesus is the absolute authority in my life. It means I believe Jesus' death cleanses me from my sins. But in so doing, it also means that I believe Jesus has the right Jesus has the privilege. Jesus has, has the ability to tell me how to live for him. If people aren't living with Jesus as the absolute authority and savior of their lives, they are not living in a saved relationship. It is not loving then to be silent if we know that they are going to die. We must grab some elbows and pull people away from the impending consequences of living in opposition to Jesus. This is more loving than silence. This is more loving than silence. Now I need to pause here because unfortunately there's some that are sinful in their pursuit of sin and there are some people that are sinful actually in their condemnation of sin and let me express what I mean there are some people that seem to take delight in pointing out how others are so wrong and they are so right 
And that's not what I'm asking us to do here. I'm asking us to love people enough to, to, to pull them out from in front of the cars, to say, this isn't right. The Word of God says this isn't right. Those people still may choose to go that way, but at least you've, you've put that thought in their brain. You put that thought in their mind. Here's how you know if you're doing this right. One, think of the story of Daniel. Daniel hesitated to tell the king. Some people say, well, he hesitated because he was fearful for his life, and maybe that is true, but I think he also hesitated because he cared about the king. And it stunned him. He said, oh, my Lord, my king. Daniel had come to care for Nebuchadnezzar, and the, and the dream that he saw broke his heart. But Daniel still loved him enough to say something. We should do this out of care. Also, when, when Daniel told the king the interpretation, he said, Oh, king, I wish this was for your enemies. I wish this was for someone else. He, he took no delight in confronting the person. If you take any delight in confronting someone else in their sin, then you're doing it with the wrong spirit. You're doing it with the wrong motive. And then I think of something that Ellen White once wrote. She said, when we go to someone to confront them in their sin, we should go with tears in our voice. If confronting them makes you feel better, then you're doing it wrong. But if going to them and saying, hey, what's happening in your life is breaking my heart, with tears in your voice, then you can do it, know that you're doing it in the spirit of God. We need to be that loving. Daniel was different than our culture because he was not willing to say, you know what, it's none of my business. Daniel was, was different from our culture in that he was willing to say, it, he, was, he was not willing to say, it's not my place to say anything. Daniel said, it is my place. O king, repent. That was loving. It was just as loving and just as life-saving as the lady grabbing my elbow on that curb in New York City. We need to be Daniels. How did he say it? Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Stop sinning and start living right. My friend Greg Taylor had the courage to say it to me. Even though I told him, I said, Greg, if you mention Jesus to me again, our friendship will be over. And yet Greg still took the risk to say, Chad, you need Jesus in your life. You're going down the wrong path. An older gentleman that I had never met and that I couldn't pick out of a lineup today in the back of a church in Denver, Colorado when I preached when I was just in my 20s. He said to me, your sermon was very funny. Be careful. That has stuck with me ever since. And every now and then when I realize I am preaching more for the laugh than for Jesus, I hear that man's rebuke in my mind and I am grateful that he had the courage to say it to me. It was the courage of a senior theology major at Union College who confronted me and told me, Chad, what you are doing is dishonoring the Sabbath. It's a sin. And one day God used those words, those words came into my mind to convict me of some things in regards to the Sabbath that I was doing that were sinful. All these moments grew me. And in this case of Greg speaking to me, they literally saved my life. 
Y'all, we have family members out there, friends, acquaintances, strangers, and at times maybe even enemies that need us to say, stop, to grab their elbows, to be Daniels for them, who, Daniels who have a, a purpose true and who dare to make it known, who dare to make it known that sin leads to death and that Jesus is the only way out. And we must stop them before the car strikes them. Brothers and sisters, do we have the courage to be Daniel, to speak up, and to save lives?